Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Rife. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about two films that are new to watch from home. They are both marginally based on true stories. One of them is True History of the Kelly Gang, and the other is Bad Education. Welcome to Film Club. Uh, hey Katie, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, time is passing in an interesting manner, it's starting to get warm outside, and so I'm. Re- I feel, Alex, I'm really bonding with my cat. Maybe a little <laughs> bit too much, because well, our lives are the same now. You yeah. know, we do. We like eat. We eat the same thing out of our little bowl in the morning, and then we get really excited when it's time to open the window. It's like <laughs> I don't have a cat or a dog or any pet, and uh, I am. Uh... I am alone in this apartment, and it's getting weird. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm happy to talk to you today. I'm happy to have this human contact today. Yes, human interaction. (laughs) What a a fun novelty, huh? (laughs) So last week we talked about movie theaters a little bit. We talked about um, how much, how nostalgic we are for going to them, and uh, how we wish we we could uh, once again go and sit down in a theater and watch a movie. It's, uh, this week it was announced that movie theaters are open again in Georgia mm-hmm. so we'll see how that goes we'll I mean. see how that goes I think that that's the only place in the country that's doing that right now mm-hmm. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about that I suppose but and even so uh some movie theater owners are saying oh we're not the option is there but I think some business owners not all business owners are gonna rush to reopen for sure regardless. so uh what obviously that no movie has really hit theaters in uh, several weeks now no I think we as we discussed uh on the first show that we did after social distancing began um that it's sort of at this point it is kind of a precedent like I think it's been I don't think we've ever seen a period of time where this long this, this amount of time passed without something opening in theaters. So, very long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think last week's topic was really, I think the timing of it and the choice of our topic last week really kind of spoke to where I think just from talking with you, and this is true for me, where we're at, where last week was when I really started to be like, man, remember going places? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the initial sort of like wave of, Anxiety was starting to wear off a little bit, and you start to feel, yeah, remember, remember doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, but movies are still coming out. Um, mm-hmm. They're just coming to streaming platforms now. There's actually a variety of ways now that you can see, you can see films from your home. I mean, they're, they're releasing on cable VOD. They're releasing digital services like Amazon or Netflix. Mm-hmm. Some theaters are doing something called something called virtual the, theaters. Yeah, the virtual cinema. Right. So where, where you, if you watch something from your home digitally, uh, some of the proceeds go to the actual movie theater that mm-hmm. uh, was going to open this film, presumably. So th- there are still movies coming out. But uh, something I'll say that is that a lot of what we've seen over the last six weeks or so, a lot of the movies that have come out, are films that were not necessarily going to... Trolls World Tour aside, uh, these were not films <laughs> that we were necessarily going to... that were necessarily going to see a big theatrical birth anyway. Sure, yeah. I think you're right in that it was mostly films that perhaps were already planning to come out on VOD and got a bigger spotlight simply because that's where everyone's attention turns. For sure. And I think we've actually even covered a couple things at this point that we might not have necessarily covered simply because uh, it's a new movie that's that's available Mm -hmm. for people to watch. But the thing about it is that a lot of these films uh, have been uh, smaller in scale and have been... I mean, I said last week that I think that 
the movie theater is almost without fail the best place presentationally to watch a movie. Right. So I think that applies even to to quote unquote small films uh, or films that don't uh, that that don't necessarily seem designed to take full advantage of the spectacle of the big screen. Sure, and that's. I think that's because of something we touched on last week, which is, you know, the the way that time passes differently in a movie theater and the way that it enraptures you, you know? Yeah. Even a story that's two people in a room talking can really take advantage of the... can be enhanced by everyone sort of being trapped in a room together. For sure, yeah. <laughs> that being said, I think Sea Fever, which is the one, the one sort of digital release, digital VOD release that we've talked about on the show at this point, is a movie that mm-hmm. plays perfectly fine on the small screen. And a lot of what's mm-hmm. coming out right now I think plays pretty okay from from your couch. This week, however, I felt, uh, watching something, I felt the first tinge of kind of melancholy for a movie that I think should be experienced, that I wish more people were going to experience on the big screen. And uh, that's the first film we're talking about today, which is True History of the Kelly Gang. Yeah, this one, uh, I I mean, part of it is the way it's shot, obviously. This film has, its style is very much up front, very much in your face, which is something that I admittedly, I kind of enjoy, I enjoy when movies are heavily stylized. Mm -hmm. I just like the spectacle of it. And also, I think it really takes advantage of these really surreal looking landscapes in Australia. Uh, It's an Australian Western. And uh, as we alluded to at the top of the show, it's based on a true story, right, Dal? Yes, it is. um, It's a mixture of truth and fictionalization. Uh, It's based on a novel by Peter Carey and uh, a a, a very well-received novel from uh, the turn of this century that basically takes the life of Ned Kelly, the famous Australian bush ranger and lightly fictionalizes it I would say there, there's mm-hmm. plenty of elements of his real life in that novel and there's plenty of elements of it in this movie as well but mm-hmm. there's also fictionalizations there's uh, a romantic relationship has been added for example and the movie kind of acknowledges its its loose relationship to the truth right from the very start I mean there's a yeah good yeah, I was going to say, this was something that kind of endeared me to the movie immediately, where, so we open with a title card, uh, words flash across the screen and say, nothing that you are about to see is true. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it says. Yeah. And so the last word on the screen is true, and then it fades into the title, which is true history of the Kelly gang, which is a nice little wink up top. For sure. <laughs> for the audience. Uh, and it's funny because right after that opening epitaph, we, we cut to Ned writing a letter to his unborn son, and he says... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it will contain no single lie. I, I'll burn in hell if I speak false. Is what he says. <laughs> so I mean, although the character—it's not the character that's lying. It's—it's it's that we are seeing a fictionalized version of this very famous outlaw's life. Sure, yeah, and I think, you know, it also kind of speaks to the kind of characters and the sort of world that's depicted in the movie. Having a slippery relationship with the truth is very in character for the sort of, like, highly individualistic frontier outlaw kind of family that the film focuses on the Kellys. For sure. A lot of movies have been made about Ned Kelly before. This is not this is not mm. the first film of its type. I mean, he's like a, a world famous figure, a, a Australian bush ranger who. What's a bush ranger? A bush ranger is uh, it's it's a sort of it's like an outlaw in Australia who hides out in the okay. who hides out in the bush basically. Oh, okay, um, okay, cool. It, so yeah, like it's always interesting when you watch an Australian western because you know some of it is familiar from American westerns. But, you know, the landscape is different. And I do think that there's something a little different about the sort of, like, the character of the people in an Australian Western. They're a little bit more 
I guess, feral. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not trying to insult Australians. I think it's kind of cool. <laughs> well, I mean, um, I think that has a lot to do with the history um, and mm. and a lot to do with uh, the fact that a lot of people who, during that particular period in Australian history, were kind of roughing it in inhospitable terrain, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that sort of collision between this encroaching force of, of law and order and civilization and the, the anarchy of that time, the anarchy of, mm-hmm. of the wild and and of the fringe of civilization, uh, th- that collision between those two forces is what a lot of Australian Westerns are about. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. American Westerns, I think, are fundamentally about the character of the country, and I think that's true with Australian Westerns, too. So uh, in terms of the... Uh, I, there have been a number of films made about Ned Kelly. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, the very first, uh, by most accounts, the very first feature film ever made is about Ned Kelly. It's the story of the, the mm-hmm. Kelly gang. It's from 1906. Most of the film at this point is lost. Uh, it, it, it was about an hour long, and now you can only see... There's like roughly 20 minutes of it still intact um, mm-hmm. that they've kind of pieced together into some semblance of, of a film at this point. So over the... I mean, Mick Jagger's played him. Heath Ledger's played him. We've seen a lot of different versions of this. I think what makes this one different is that this is a film that is largely interested in his upbringing. Because, uh, I mean, Kelly is a Kelly is kind of a folk hero at this point in Australia. I mean, he remains a divisive figure, somebody who... Um, a lot of people still see, see as this as this sort of figure of, of, of mythic romantic rebellion against against uh, mm-hmm. against oppressive law and order. But there's a lot of people. Sorry, would you compare it to like Bonnie and Clyde or something like that, or like Jesse James, a character like that? I think he is he is on par with Jesse James or Wyatt Earp or something in terms okay. of his 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 importance to to the history and the legends of Australia. Of, of Australia, mm-hmm. I mean, he might actually be in, in terms of his relationship to the countries, to, to the culture of, of his country. He might actually be a bigger figure than those two. I mean, I, I think I read somewhere that more that uh, more biographies have been written about uh, Ned Kelly than any other Australian. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he's a huge figure, but most of the films, most films about his life, tend to focus on his exploits and the, the years mm-hmm. when he was working with uh, with this gang and they were robbing banks. And this is a film that largely pushes that material to the margins and kind of covers it in the last 45 minutes. Right. Um, well, I mean, clearly I'm not quite as familiar with the Ned Kelly story as you are, but I didn't feel like it really took away from the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes sense that this would be something of a perhaps revisionist take. I kind of got that impression just from watching it, just just in the way that it's it's stylized in this really sort of like cheeky train spotting esque in your face winking way that I kind of got the sense that it was a revisionist you know piece of work just from that but I also like you were talking about uh, concentrating on his upbringing is sort of an interesting refreshing angle for you know an outlaw story that even if you aren't familiar with Ned Kelly in particular you're almost certainly familiar with a story about you know a cool outlaw who robs Banks, yeah, I yeah, guess. for sure. <laughs> In whatever frontier your country would happen to have. And I think what's really interesting is that um, a lot of movies about Kelly tend to treat him as a figure who is shaping his own destiny, basically. He's this larger-than-life outlaw who who sort of he sort of took his life by the horns and uh, was paving his own way into the history books. And mm-hmm. while that's technically true with this rendition of it, I think that the movie suggests that it was not... That he wasn't necessarily writing his own destiny so much as it was being written for him. I mean, I think this is very much a film about somebody who's... Because, I mean, the, the first half of the film is, is pretty much entirely his childhood. And right. 
right. we see a number of... And different figures yes, in his life. exactly. Different mm-hmm. kind of mentor figures, one might say. Mm-hmm. Most of them very bad. <laughs> one of whom is played by Russell Crowe. I would say in one of his best performances in a very long time. Yeah. He is like a hoot yeah. in this. He's a really bad guy, but he's also a hoot. He's one of those. <laughs> For sure. It's it's like, it's nice to see Crowe really like digging his teeth into a role and having fun with it because I, mm-hmm. I feel like we haven't gotten mm-hmm. that much of that over the last few years. Sure, yeah. Probably since uh, probably since The Nice Guys. It's probably his most entertaining performance since The Nice Guys. Mm-hmm. Crow is playing uh, Harry Power, who was a uh, who was also a Bush Ranger, and he kind of took young Ned under under his wing. Although the movie again implies that 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 was not anything that Ned really had much choice in. You know, right? So he's essentially sold. To, uh, to this bush ranger by his mother, uh, who's played by Essie Davis from, from The Babadook. Yeah, she's a really interesting character. The thing that you're talking about, the way that his life is shaped by these forces, I, one thing I thought was interesting was it was sort of about, like, I saw these threads in the film of, like, on the one hand, he's kind of shaped by his ancestors being from Ireland and the dynamic between the Irish and the English that they're bringing, you know, with them to the new country. But at the same time, I sort of saw, felt like the country itself was shaping him. Do you... I agree 100%. I actually think that um, a big part of what the movie's after is this notion that the conflicts of this period in Australian history are kind of being written across the landscape of his life, in a way. Mm, that he mm-hmm. is sort of he is sort of living out the, the, the grudges and the conflicts, the cultural conflicts of that time period in his own life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They touch on that, you know, when, even when he forms the gang. Yeah, and, and and there, I mean, there's a lot of characters in the film that are representatives of, of the English Empire, we might say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nicholas Holt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed his turn in this. This film had a great cast. You know, we yeah. keep tossing out names of just great actors who appear in... It, this is more of an ensemble film. I would say that you, Crow's role is pretty small. He's not in it for a lot of time. Yeah. But uh, they're like Nicholas Holt's character and Essie Davis's character. They're both big characters in the film. I would definitely call it an ensemble. For sure. And then you also have Charlie Hunt. Who plays um, mm-hmm, Charlie Hunnam? He's like a local sergeant who um, Ned's mother is basically a sex worker, and she sort of is his father is a, is a drunk who doesn't really provide for the family, and so she's the one sort of providing for the family in that respect. And Hunnam plays this this sergeant who basically comes and frequents frequents her, and he's like mm-hmm. the first of the movie's these toxic male role models that that you see in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. it's almost like every older male figure who Ned encounters in this film is this kind of this force of negative influence and this figure of opposition for him. Yeah, and he has no choice but to take on all of their grudges from the old country. For sure. You know, everything they brought with them. He's just kind of thrust into it and doesn't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the tragedy of the film in some respects Mm -hmm. is that, again, a lot of versions of this this story play out Kelly as this romantic figure, uh, somebody whose exploits were meant to kind of celebrate but I think this movie's attitude about it, and I think this comes from, from the book as well, is this notion that he kind of didn't really have a choice. That This was kind of a self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy. We see him over and over again. He's played by, when he gets older, he's played by George McKay, who was most recently in uh, 1917. Yep. from uh, last year. And we see him over and over again kind of resisting the call to violence 
as much as he can. I mean, when he's with Crow's character, he, he resists the violence that that character asks him to, to commit. There are numerous instances when he's kind of at this crossroad between do I commit this act of violence or not? And he constantly has people pushing him towards that violence. And mm-hmm. the movie is sort of about the, the dramatic crescendo of the film occurs essentially when he embraces the version of Ned Kelly that the history books talk about, the one that uh, this this sort of figure of this this outlaw figure of violence. And mm-hmm. I think there's some underlying tragedy to that. Well, I mean, you know, it, I, it is tragic. And um, I think the film, I think it's making, you know, that there's, there's a political element to it too, with all, you know, all the different, you know, nations we were talking about and uh, the, the conflict between the Irish and the English, for example. But this is not a sad film you know it's it's actually very thrilling there's a lot of action in it um it moves quite quickly there's not a lot of laugh out loud funny jokes but the tone is kept pretty light and the movie does move along pretty quickly throughout it doesn't really linger on some of its more heavier themes i'd say yeah i mean it's not a slog I think I think is right. what you're saying. Like this is not something yeah, where you're yeah, just yeah. even though the, the details of Kelly's life as as fictionalized in this film are pretty harsh. A lot of them. Uh, <laughs> harsh is a mild word. Yeah. It was to the point where at times I was just like, is this is this like insulting to Australians? <laughs> because, you know? Well, but I think actually some of some of the harsher details are pretty. I, I think are pretty true to his life story. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, squalid is the word yes. I think that yeah. we're both reaching for here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like they go to like they go to when they want to relax. They go to this metal cube in the middle of a snowy field, and they just sit inside the metal cube when they want to relax. It's very bleak. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, that. I think there are some laugh out loud funny moments in this movie. To be honest, okay, yeah. Uh, when Harry takes him to that uh, to that shack, it's the bleakest look. It looks like yeah. like the the, the monolith from 2001 and this is like their fun time cabin it's like okay Ed Harry explains that this is his getaway place and Ned says like is this your cave and he says no sweetheart it's our cave (laughs) (laughs) Crow is very funny in this film Um, it's directed by (laughs) Justin Kurzel who's an Australian filmmaker probably his most famous film is he did a version of Macbeth a few years ago with Michael Fassbender Mm -hmm. and Marion Cotillard those two then reunited for his adaptation of the video game Assassin's Creed which I have not seen but is I would say it's fair to say that it's roundly disliked <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think this is a pretty strong film, and I and I think he directs it with a lot of flair. I think it's after the after the scene with Kelly writing the letter, we flash back, and there's this sort of highly symbolic, really striking image of somebody on horseback just riding through this desolate landscape. And the mm-hmm, movie is filled mm-hmm. with these striking, memorable images like that. Yeah, and you co- you combine those sort of striking images with some. Uh, you know, we were talking about the kind of squalor that he grew up in, but when when Kelly does embrace it and the violence does build to a crescendo, there's an extended period of this film, oh, I'd say probably at least 10 minutes, where it's pretty much guys soaked in blood, like, yeah. screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? It, 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 does, it doesn't... Um, it really goes for it, I think, in all things, which is why I admired that it was making these kind of sophisticated thematic lines to it but what but the the film itself is just so like crazy some of the stuff that happens is so crazy and it's stylized in such an in-your-face way that it's admirable that they have this sort of subtle commentary on nationalism and things like that all built into a very big a crazy movie (laughs) (laughs) 
if I have any reservations about it, to be honest, it is with the, the sort of final act of the film, which feels... It goes really big. Well, it, it... The screaming and the blood and all that. It's interesting. I don't necessarily have an issue with, with the violence or with, with it kind of reaching this fever pitch of, of hysteria and conflict. I think mm-hmm. that's sort of where this has to go. It mm-hmm. honestly, to me, though, feels like this could have... There could have been another hour on this film because mm. the movie is kind of building to him becoming the Ned Kelly of legend. Mm-hmm. And then all of that is kind of truncated into the final 45 minutes of the film. I mean, we, we don't even see them. Is that part of it being revisionist, though? It's sort of like resisting building the myth itself? I do. Yeah, I do think that is part of it. I think that it's deliberately undermining all the stuff that a movie about Ned Kelly would usually focus on. But I still think that I argue that that might be a mistake, at least in the sense that it feels like the movie is building and building and building. And then we get to this final chapter and the movie is just, it's like condensing all of it into this into this mm-hmm. tight 45. And we, we don't even see them rob banks. And we don't, I mean, maybe we don't need another version that gets into all of his exploits. Maybe, so may, maybe it's okay that this movie downplays that so much, particularly thematic reasons, I think, in this case as well. Uh, I still mm-hmm. felt there was something a little bit rushed about that, the final act of the film. Well, I would say, you know, not, even if you're not super familiar with Ned Kelly's exploits, as I was not when I watched it, it's still an enjoyable film to watch, but I wonder if because I didn't have as much background going in, there were times when I felt like some of the characters were pretty shallow and maybe you're just supposed to be already acquainted with them. And so the sort of catching up was deemed unnecessary, perhaps. Interesting. Yeah. I do wonder how this might play in Australia, for example, where, um, I mean, he, he's completely a household name there. I mean, I think that he's, he's, a fi- he's a figure who's, who's known internationally as well, but in Australia, he's like one of their largest cultural figures. And uh, I have to assume this plays maybe a little bit different to an Australian audience. Well, True History of the Kelly Gang is a historical tale of uh, uh, malfeasance and moral flexibility. And actually, these films do have a lot in common. Two big things. One, they both have great ensemble casts. And two, we both liked them. And this one, Alex, you you wrote a review of Bad Education, which premieres Saturday on HBO. You wrote a review of it for the site. Now, the director of this one made one of your favorite films of the past few years, as long as I've known you, Thoroughbreds. Yes. Yeah, he made um, Thoroughbreds which is about a, a, a pair of teen girls who end up plotting a murder. This is, in some ways, Bad Education is, I think, in some ways, a less idiosyncratic film than that, mm-hmm. both in the way that's written. Corey Finley, the director, did not write this film. Uh, it was actually written by somebody who grew up in the community that the film looks at, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. I think both in, 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 in both the script and in, in the way that he directs it, I think this is, in some ways, a slightly more conventional film. But it's also one that, I think, carries some of the themes of Thoroughbreds into a new environment. I think visually, visually, once you know that it's the same director, you could, like, there are some visual signatures in this, at least it's sort of, in compared to Thoroughbreds, they both are big into very balanced but sort of low horizontal compositions mm-hmm. you know big big shots like vi- i found the visual style to be like you said a more toned down version of i guess the film was perhaps a pure representation of his style yeah i mean i think partially it's the material thoroughbreds is is mm-hmm. is a thriller and i think that it's kind of constantly using its form to to do things with suspense there's there's a very there's a, there's a scene in Thor- thoroughbreds that i love involving the the floodlights the, the sort of automatic floodlights mm-hmm. outside a house. There's He does a lot of stuff with off-screen noise in Thoroughbreds. 
but I think again that that is a movie that depends on uh, using form to uh, to build suspense. Whereas this is this movie is a little bit more. Uh, it's more of a procedural. Yeah, they weren't using the form to build the suspense so much. Yeah. But one thing I admired about Bad Education was the way that the sort of the depth of the scandal. So it, it revolves around an embezzling scandal at a very highly regarded exclusive school district in Long Island where the quality of the schools is very much wrapped up in the property values and you know like thoroughbreds it's a wealthy neighborhood Uh, but one thing I enjoyed about the film was it sort of starts with these little small allowances it does a lot with sort of I think this is a testament to the direction it it builds slowly like these little allowances that the characters give themselves and like uh, at first Hugh Jackman he's playing the superintendent of this school district Frank Tassoni at first he lets himself have a bite of a sandwich you know and it starts from breaking your diet and then you have the character Alice and Janney who I you could call her the second lead plays his you know his uh, assistant she's the business manager of, yeah. uh, of the school district Right, and then you see her allow one of the employees to put a personal charge on a school card, and it's these little allowances, piece by piece, that grow and grow and grow. And it sort of fits in with something that the movie was dealing with, the small allowances that otherwise good people will give themselves that can build into straight-up criminality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it was a slow trickle. Mm-hmm. The, this, the scandal that the film is based on, uh, the school district was Ros- the Roslyn School District in New York. And this happened around, uh, the, it was in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of one of those things where as people started to discover that there was that there was financial fraud happening, they, re- they realized that they were really only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Iceberg, mm-hmm. these two administrators stole basically embezzled millions of dollars from the taxpayers. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was $11 million, yeah. they say. So, and the movie kind of turns that into this this sort of procedural of white-collar crime. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, you're kind of hitting on one of the smarter things about the film, which is that for the for the, maybe the first act, for the first half hour or so, we're kind of just sharing the space of these characters who have done this. Frank, played by, by Hugh Jackman, is uh, he's sort of introduced coming onto stage to applause. He is like this this golden figure in the in, in, for, for the school district. He, he's somebody who has basically taken. I think it's important to note too that while this is an upper middle class district, it's public schools. So yes. this is not these are not private schools. So there is kind of an added. He's taken the school district over the years, and they are now based on on testing and college admissions. They are now like number five in the country for public schools. I think I think it was four. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a funny scene at the beginning where he walks out like you were saying to the big applause, and they drop a banner and it says number four, which <laughs> yeah, is yeah, pretty yeah, funny. Yeah. <laughs> but when we first meet these characters, we we really I mean if you went into this not knowing what this was about at all and I imagine some people watching on HBO on Saturday might experience that if you're listening to this podcast we're ruining that sorry but (laughs) if you watch this film you wouldn't necessarily guess that you're looking at two people who have embezzled that much money and I think right yeah I think part of it is what you're talking about that it is that they made these small allowances that became bigger ones over the years I think it's also though the film is really about rationalization and about and about people who compartmentalize Mm, yeah that becomes more clear as the film goes on yeah because I mean, yeah. as as their their kind of house of cards starts to crumble, the two of them uh, sort of are, end up sort of tying themselves in these ethical knots to justify what they've done. Uh, there's a scene where, and you keep seeing more and more that of what they've done. It becomes yes. the scope of it 
unfolds along with the story, which is something that I really admired about it. I thought that was a really cool technique. It actually reminded me a lot of the film Shattered Glass about mm-hmm. um, with Hayden Christensen as Stephen Glass, the the, the, the the famous fabulist who who made mm-hmm. up a bunch of stories for the New Republic. It, it's it's a con artist. It's sort of a portrait of a con artist in that way, in that we go into it not knowing the full scope of what mm-hmm. its characters have done. They basically are pathological liars in a sense. Mm-hmm. And they have, I I really do think a lot of it is about uh, how you're able to compartmentalize because I think Jackman's character especially sees himself as the way that the community sees him, as somebody who has devoted his life to education. Yeah. And uh, he basically sees the financial fraud as something, he like basically has completely sectioned that off from his from his self-image. And well, and his personal life too, you know, like at the beginning of the film, I, I won't even say it because, like, I, it was genuinely surprising. There's so much about his life, you know, just the way he presents himself to the public is what we see at the beginning of the movie. And I think you're right about the compartmentalizing. And the film starts off compartmentalized mm-hmm. that we don't realize what this guy's been up to fully yeah. until almost towards the end of the film. Right. It just keeps peeling back these layers. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which is very fun. Honestly, very fun to watch. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, it's really fun. Yeah. Whenever there's a new reveal, you're all like... <gasps> <laughs> and it sort of suggests that his double life, that his crimes are just kind of an extension of his double life. And we won't say more about that mm-hmm. life necessarily. But all of it is just part of the way that he's managed to maintain this public image and at the same time do things in his life that he keeps completely separate from that public image. So there's another theme in the film that starts pretty early on, continues to build, not not in the same way in the sense that this high school student has secrets, but (laughs) just the story continues to build alongside the reveal of the scope of um, Frank and Pam's sort of scheme that they have going. There's a character in the film, her name is Rachel. Uh, she's played by a really cool, yuck, up-and-coming actress. She was in Blockers originally. Her name is Geraldine Visnowathan. Please forgive me, Geraldine, <laughs> if I said it wrong. Uh, she was in the film Blockers. She was in a film called Hala earlier this year. And now she plays the character of Rachel, who in a parallel to, this unfolds throughout the film as well, not in the sense that she has this secret double life but in the sense that her investigation gets deeper she's a reporter for the school newspaper and at the beginning of the film Frank Hugh Jackman's character who she ends up investigating encourages her to not just take this as a puff piece assignment about the new construction at the school and to really be a real journalist he encourages her to write the article that ends up incriminating him which is so funny to me it's a really it's a really sharp irony i i I think i think that the screenwriter embellished that particular Mm -hmm. detail i I don't think that a student was directly involved in at least to the extent that this film presents it i don't think that a student like yeah they present it as like her breaking the story yeah Yeah. but it's very that's a very clever that's a clever irony because a lot of the film again is about this person who who kind of lives a double life and mm-hmm. in a sense, when he tells her that at the beginning of the movie, I mean, he is being a good educator in that moment. Yes, you know? exactly. And one of the fascinating things about the film, I think, is that it doesn't try to deny that this that this guy, at least as, as the movie presents him, was genuinely good for the school district and what did genuinely care about his students. I mean, he's we, yeah. we meet him early on, and he's kind of he's kind of wandering around the school, and he's this kind of beloved figure there because of because of how he's he's helped the community. And I mean, the, the movie takes care to show how he he 
learns people's names and mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't it suggests that he does that partially because being in the position he's in is kind of being a politician. You have to know the names of, every, of all the parents. You have to know the students. But he also genuinely gives a damn. Like the, like the movie doesn't deny yeah. that. He does give a damn. Like he, <laughs> But at the same time, he's doing this other thing. That, that he, he's involved in this financial fraud. And in that, right. in that moment, it's almost like him being a good teacher actually sabotages his self-interest with <laughs> oh 100 you know? yeah like by making this a great school with a great journalism department he ends up sealing his own doom you know this yeah. student is only living up to the expectations that are being set for her by adults like frank yeah the, yeah. I think the movie also implies, too, that the community um, kind of was, was... The reason that this was able to go on as long as it did is because there was so much prosperity coming to the school district. No, mm. Nobody wanted to look for trouble, you know? I mean, yeah. it, like everything yeah, was going really well. Yeah, that's something they state in the film that is another sort of, like... I guess universal truth is that no one wants to look for problems when things seem to be going well. For sure. And I, you know, I, I, I like movies about journalists. I like movies about investigative journalists. I think it's kind of fun that this film is, I think it's both a con artist story and, and a, a procedural of white collar crime, as I said, but it's also a story of a muckraking reporter. In this case, they just happen to be <laughs> a high school kid. Yeah, um, high school sophomore right? with better journalistic instincts than a lot of... Totally. But <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that same pleasure that you get out of something like All the President's Men or Spotlight, where you're getting into the nitty gritty of how she's cracking this case. There's there's there there's mm -hmm. seeds of her basically going through spreadsheets and chasing down numbers and I got a little bit of that thrill that I get from those movies where you're sort of seeing somebody <laughs> slowly uncover the truth. A journalist do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, her dad, who is uh, unemployed, ends up uh, kind of getting involved with it too, <laughs> yeah. which uh, which I also appreciated. It was like you got to keep journalists busy or they'll <laughs> start uncovering everyone's secrets. I guess. <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I really think that this thing benefits, too, from having Jackman in the lead. Mm -hmm. He's uh, I think Jackman's a very good actor. I think occasionally I feel that um, he's stuck in these roles where he has to be uh, extremely intense. And I don't always mm -hmm. uh, find that to be his most convincing. As much as I like him as Wolverine in the, the X-Men films, I don't mm -hmm. always find him that convincing when he's in that mode. I think partially because as a movie star, he has so much charm that a lot of movies don't put to don't put to to use as much. Um, uh -huh. I, I think partially that's related to the fact that he that he he became a movie star playing Wolverine, so he's been stuck in action movies and like one performance of his. Well, go ahead. Sorry. He has another mode too, which is sort of like greatest showman mode of right. like uh, song and dance, tap dance, Hugh Jackman, and he does that a little bit here, but it's mostly part of uh, Frank's persona, you know. Right. Well, and that's a big part of what I think the, how the movie is using him, honestly, is that that mm -hmm. natural charm that he has in something like The Greatest Showman or as like the host of the Oscars, you know? Yes, yeah. Um, uh -huh. That's been applied to a guy who has a kind of like Kennedy-like charisma to him in this particular social petri dish. But that is also a front for a, a, a certain desperation and intensity that mm -hmm. we see underneath gradually. And and that's part of sort of the class element of it, which isn't really explored in a whole lot of detail. It's sort of just presented as like an excuse that he throws out for his mm -hmm. behavior of like, well, I had to keep up with, 
you know, all these wealthy parents in the school district. And I mean, I think that yeah, Finley, he hasn't done a lot yet, but it's interesting because Thoroughbreds is also, it's about even wealthier people, like really true wealth, not just upper middle class. And um, I don't think he really has dug into the class dynamics of these settings so much uh, in his work thus far. I don't know, because I think that his films are, are about, in both of his films at this point, I think he's drawing links between kind of sociopathic behavior and mm-hmm. aspirationally climbing the social ladder. Mm. I think even the characters in in Thoroughbreds are, I think they're defined. They're not really climbing, though. They're like, not. They're, they're already they just, there. You're they right. were just, yeah, they were, they're just up there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there is something that's true. They're, they're, they're already up there, basically. Frank is a figure who is, I think, definitely dressing for a social strata that he's not necessarily a part of. Yeah, it's just, um, it's something that I sort of see hinted at in this director's work that yeah. I would love to see be more of a central theme, you know, because uh, if he doesn't do a complete, you know, 180 and never do a film or, or a, about rich people again. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dowd, you said that True History of the Kelly Gang is one that you really wish people could have seen on the big screen, but he, even if it hadn't been for COVID, uh, Bad Education would still be a small screen film. It's an HBO film. So do you think that it was suited for the small screen? I think it works fine on the small screen, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said at, at the top of this, I think that almost everything plays a little bit better on the big screen. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think this is something that is going to be hurt by being seen uh, in your living room. You know, right. uh, even though I think formally it is, it's, it's not, I, I wouldn't call it uh, extravagant in any way, but I do think that it's it's a well-made film and it's it's well shot and well put together. And there are some, a few idiosyncratic choices in staging, but yeah, I mean, I think it actually, it actually works perfectly well on the small screen. And I think that uh, it will probably actually appeal to people who watch sort of prestige TV dramas, because I think uh, yeah. it's not so far removed from that. Well, there does seem to be sort of a certain type of story, number one, that is an HBO movie. And there is something uh, that is, you know, sort of quintessentially HBO movie two about having a director using their style, but just tweaked a little bit, maybe dialed back just a little bit as like an HBO movie. I, I wonder, though, how much we those distinctions are increasingly being blurred and how much they're sure. even going to even going to matter anymore after, after a few years. I mean, are we going to see more movies? going straight to HBO? Well, there's certainly no shame on it. You know, Steven Soderbergh kind of took care of that back in 2013 when Behind the Candelabra premiered on HBO, and that was a con selection. So. Yeah, that was in competition at Cannes. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the distinction between I mean, theatrical feature and TV movie is shrinking mm-hmm. in some ways. This does not in any way play, I think, like uh, the, stereoty- the, the, the sort of stereotypical pejorative notion of what a TV movie is. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I think that's changing. I think that, especially with the streaming services have played a part too, something premiering directly to your TV set is not is no longer a badge of shame. Well, that's all we got for you this week. Thank you for joining us here on Film Club. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. 